Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to Starseed Radio Academy, empowering Starseed to better serve the planet. Welcome to Starseed Radio Academy. It's Tuesday, February 5th, 2019, and I'm your host, Arielle Taylor, with my co-hosts, Lavendar and Anastasia. Our next two Starseed Quests to Arkansas are March 15th through the 18th for Spring Equinox, Athena's birthday, and then again in May, the 17th through the 20th for Pleiadian lineup. This is a soul group reunion, and all star seeds with at least one star marking at galactic degree are welcome. There are only a few spots left for both events, so if you're interested, please write to crystals at starseedhotline.com for more info. Our special guest this evening is Erica Schlick, who was sick for two years before she was finally diagnosed with Lyme disease. She was so debilitated that she went from being a licensed architect to spending much of her time in bed. She was also diagnosed with celiac disease. One of the first steps she took to regain her health was to change her diet. The autoimmune paleo diet helped her figure out what foods worked for her body and which did not. Erica wrote Wandering Palate so that others can enjoy optimal health on a paleo diet while relishing delicious dishes at the same time. Many of the recipes featured in Wandering Palate were inspired by meals Erica enjoyed during her travels but are easy to prepare. Meals should be simple, delicious, healing, and practical, she stresses. After a five-year journey that included stem cell treatment and maintaining a healthy, gluten-free diet, Erica has been in remission from Lyme disease for two years. In Erica's words, when you are sick with chronic illness, diet is one of the first things you need to adjust to try to get better. So it definitely has contributed to my recovery and staying in remission, so never give up. Wandering Palette is Erica's celebration and testimonial that you can get your life back. She received her health coaching certification from the Institute of Integrative Nutrition and has been working as a health coach to guide people on their path back to wellness. You can visit her website, which is thetrailtohealth.com. At the top of the show, it's Anastasia's Starseed News, bringing topics of interest to starseeds that you won't hear in the mainstream. And we'd like to thank Kathy, Jada, and Fiona for hosting the switchboard tonight for those who may have a question or comment for our guest. We have an online Starseed community at starseedhotline.ning.com, and it's a safe place to connect with other Starseeds thanks to Tammy's helpful dedication. And you can download our shows on iTunes or right here on Blog Talk. And if you'd like to su- support our program, please just click follow on our page here, and you'll get our weekly show notices if you have those notifications enabled. Our main website is starseedhotline.com. The Stage 1 Starseed confirmations are based on Lavendar's discovery of star markings and your natal astrological chart, and the Stage 2 session is a one-on-one phone session available with Lavendar, Anastasia, or myself. If you have a birthday coming up, you don't want to miss out on your 10 hours of power. You can find out when that happens by requesting your solar return timing. And please remember, if you want a stage two interpretation of that chart, please order it at least four months ahead of time to make sure you get it in before your 10 hours because we do have a waiting list. 
So first up tonight, it's Anastasia with her fascinating Starseed News. Hey, Anastasia. Anastasia, hello. Are your, your mute button must be on. Huh. Anastasia, I see you there, but I cannot hear you. Hey, am I here now? You're here now. Oh, <laughs> am I there now? I mean, <laughs> sorry about that. <laughs> well, good evening, everyone. Hello. It's great to be with you. Hello there. Well, I want to tell you about the Milky Way. You know, as a child and for years, I mean forever since I've seen pictures of the Milky Way, it looked like such a beautiful sort of flat, thin disk in a perfect spiral. But now they've discovered something else. They tell us now that the Milky Way is torqued into an S-shape. And I'll explain. New research finds that at the edges of the galaxy, where the pull of gravity weakens, the shape of the Milky Way starts to warp. And instead of lying in a flat plane, the galaxy takes on a bit of a twisted S shape. Now, the reason for that has to do with the center of the Milky Way, which they tell us is a supermassive black hole surrounded by billions of stars and invisible dark matter, which can't be seen directly, but exerts that gravitational pull that helps keep the galaxy together. Now, the outer reaches of the galaxy, as we could easily imagine, are difficult to image, given that the Milky Way is 100,000 light years, or one-half of a quintillion miles across. It's even hard to say. Half of a quintillion miles from end to end. Now, Chinese scientists recently published their new catalog of certain stars in our galaxy. And it was from looking at the uh, over 1,000 stars, <laughs> excuse me, called the Cepheid stars, from that particular catalog that scientists think they have discovered that the positions of these stars reveal a warping at the outer edges of the galaxy, finding that the ends of the Milky Way bend like this S-shape in a progressively twisted spiral pattern. Now, they also tell us the Milky Way isn't alone. Apparently, they've discovered that in other galaxies as well, because the article goes on to say that a dozen other galaxies have previously been shown to display similar warping. And according to the observatories uh, with the National Astronomical Association, the warping seems to be caused by the torque induced by the rotation of the inner disk of the galaxy. So I guess we aren't so flat after all, kind of spreads out at the edges. We'll stay tuned and see what else they find out. And that is simply discovered through extrapolation Scientists looked at the catalog, and that, of course, was a pattern of stars and and the light, how the uh, stars emit light. They vary from time to time and year to year, and it's all quite complicated. But as our scientists looked at that data, they said, wait a minute. Okay, this is indicates that the Milky Way is not a flat disk, but that it is a spiral pattern that is twisted. So anyway, they get that uh, not from direct observation, but from calculation. Well, we have a comet approaching. A new celestial visitor was discovered by a Japanese astronomer late last year. Now, they tell us it's a fast-moving comet that will be closest to Earth on the 12th of February this year at around 2.50-something in the afternoon, Eastern Time. Now, this celestial visitor is going to safely pass by our Earth at some 28 million miles, 
It's been named C-2018Y1, Iwamoto for short, because that's the name of the astronomer that discovered it. And they say it's passing uh, through space at the amazing speed of almost 148,000 miles per hour. They tell us that the best nights for discovering this comet with binoculars and telescopes should be on February 11th and 12th. And they tell us that it might reach a brightness of magnitude between 7 and 7.8, which means that you can easily see it with your binoculars, but will not be able to see it with your eyes alone. Now, in uh, southeastern Brazil, they are really having uh, uh, some heat. And not Brazil, excuse me, Australia and Brazil, both of them. They say that uh, temperatures are rising above 104 degrees Fahrenheit. In Rio de Janeiro, they're uh, taking special measures to help keep people and animals cool during the hottest summer in almost 100 years. And um, they say that in Brazil, where they grow coffee beans, uh, that the beans are roasting on the plants even before being picked. And this is according to local reports. They're cooking on the plants. And elsewhere in South America, they tell us that hundreds of cows are dying uh, in Argentina, Brazil, and Uruguay from heat stress. So they are very hot down there. Well, we are pretty mm. cold up here. <laughs> and there's been a seismic swarm that's in progress between southern Cascadia and northern San Andreas Faults. There have been several or four or five magnitude 3.4 and larger quakes that happened within two hours, all south of Cape, Cape Mendocino. This happened on Sunday. Based on the earthquake locations and their focal mechanisms, the swarm appears to be occurring on a fault that connects the northernmost San Andreas-Mendocino fracture zone with a shallow portion of the Cascadia megathrust. Now, that doesn't mean much to me, but for those of you who follow such a thing, maybe that will mean something to you. Anyway, there is a swarm, and it's occurring on a specific fault that they've identified. Well... Electric vehicles seem so cool because, you know, they're, they're green. They help the environment. But now, with this cold weather, they say that electrical vehicle owners are learning extremely cold temperatures are going to lead to frustration because of the battery-powered uh, vehicle. The batteries just don't want to operate in cold weather. Uh, they say that as we push through the cold uh, weather that we're having, um, people that are buying these cars, that have bought these cars, are starting to realize that electric vehicles are much different than gas-powered engines in the winter. There have been uh, reports on the Internet that uh, owners of Tesla's Model 3S have been very unhappy because they've had numerous issues with the cold weather in their cars. People complain about the battery draining and parts of the vehicles freezing up. To so keep that in mind, if you buy an electric vehicle, they say that you probably have to put it into a closed environment with some heat, keep it running that way. It can't be exposed to the deeply cold air or you're going to have problems. And in northeastern Australia, there has been a once-in-a-century flood. Floods down there have turned streets into rivers and forced thousands of people to abandon their homes in northeast Australia their warning of tornadoes and more rain over the next few days. They say that heavy rains during the monsoon season at this time of year are pretty normal, but the recent downpour has surged far above normal levels. 
People in Queensland were without power and were cut off by flooded roads. Wild animals were floating through town, alligators, snakes, all kinds of creatures uh, from the forested areas got washed out. They say that more severe weather could whip up tornadoes and winds in the days ahead. Up to 20,000 homes are at risk of being flooded if the rains continue. And meanwhile, military personnel are delivering tens of thousands of sandbags trying to uh, stave off this flooding. They say that it's a one-in-a-hundred-year event in Australia. Well, you all look back just a few days ago. We had some extreme cold, and that cold left more than a couple of dozen people dead. And they say that even as temperatures rise at the moment, the wild weather is not over. After a week of sub-zero temperatures, the Midwest is starting to thaw, but forecasters are telling us that this weather is not over, and they're informing upper state residents to brace for massive temperature swings. For example, the Twin Cities of Minneapolis and St. Paul went from 32 below zero to 7 degrees just two days ago, and now they are predicting to plunge back down to negative 23 degrees by Thursday. So we're on a roller coaster with the weather. Well, here is a really cool story. You know, as a child, I often thought that if I put books under my pillow at night, I could learn when I slept. And you've heard that before, but, I mean, I always thought that was possible. And I did it. Believe it or not, I did it. Well, guess what? Researchers at the University of Bern in Switzerland have shown that we can acquire the vocabulary of a new language during distinct and specific phases of low wave, slow wave sleep, and that the sleep learned vocabulary could be retrieved unconsciously following uh, coming awake. You just think about that. Learn a new language unconsciously, and that after we awaken, we may be able to recover it. Memory formation appeared to be mediated by the same brain structures that also mediate uh, vocabulary learning when we are awake. Sleeping time is sometimes considered, or actually often considered, unproductive time. And this raises the question whether the time spent asleep could be used more productively. Example, for maybe learning a new language. Well, this new evidence for sleep learning is challenging the current theories of sleep and theories of memory. The notion of sleep as an encapsulated mental state in which we are detached from the physical environment is no longer tenable according to these new studies. Scientists now say that they can disprove previous beliefs that sophisticated learning is impossible during deep sleep. How far and with what consequences deep sleep can be utilized for the acquisition of new information, they tell us will be a topic of research for, for years to come. So now they've got their sleeves rolled up. They're going to dig in and just find out how this is possible and how we can actually convert that into useful learning time. Amazing. Cool. That'd be great. And by the way, you know, many people go to sleep at night maybe with their radios on, maybe they listen to music or news. And it makes you wonder if really that's something we probably ought to do since we are taking in information on the unconscious level while we're sleeping. Just something to keep in mind. Well, King Arthur and Merlin and the Holy Grail. Cool, wonderful stuff. They've discovered something. 
a librarian unexpectedly discovered seven handwritten parchments detailing the legendary adventures of Merlin and King Arthur that were lain hidden at the University of Bristol in England. The parchments were discovered in a book dating to the 16th century. This librarian happened across these parchments while seeking materials for his students who needed historical documents from medieval times. And when the librarian recognized several Arthurian names in the book, he contacted his colleagues to help decipher the text. Now, this team hopes to learn how the fragments came to be bound in the Gerson volumes. This is a particular type of history record that, by the way, it was written in Old French, and they plan to translate this from Old French to Modern English, and they will explain the writing's history. They say that in this text, as far as they've been able to determine, who knows what they're telling us. I mean, I don't know if they're reporting all of it or that they know more than they're saying, but anyway, they say that there are differences in these texts from the traditional tales of Arthur Merlin and the Holy Grail. They say that new information is emerging, but because of damage to the fragments, it will take time to decipher the context properly, perhaps even requiring the use of infrared technology. But anyway, the researchers are very excited to uncover more about the fragments and what this new information might hold. That's pretty amazing, discovered by accident. So we'll have to wait and see what happens with that. I'll try to follow that as best I can. Some of these things sit for years before they reemerge, but we'll find out. And in southern Russia, they have discovered another skeleton with a large head what they call the alien egg-shaped skull. Now, deformed skulls and necks have previously been found in the graves and burial sites of many ancient nations. You all know that. And archaeologists are believing that the remains belong to elite members of those respective societies. It goes back to the Huns, the Samaritans, on and on it goes, not to mention South America and so on. Well, archaeologists from the Institute of Caucasus Archaeology in Russia unearthed a strange-looking skeleton of a woman who is believed to have lived sometime between the 4th and 6th centuries near the Russian city of Nazran in the Caucasus Mountains. Now, her skull definitely looks alien-like. It was severely deformed, they say, thoroughly egg-shaped. Well, the strange shape of her skull and the incredibly full rows of white teeth have led scientists to state that she belonged, <coughs> excuse me, to a noble class of citizens. But you know, this isn't the first time that archaeologists have found these skulls. Um, we all know about that, and there have been so many finds like this in recent years. Just not, not just in the past, but in recent years. And assuming this Russian story isn't a hoax, the elongated skull likely wasn't a result of artificial deformation because it's simply too big a deformation. When you see the pictures, you'll know what I mean. I mean, meaning a human skull doesn't have enough bone to expand to the head size of this particular skeleton. And dozens of these have been recovered recently from medieval Europe, France, uh, Russia, Mexico, Bolivia, Peru, Korea, just to name a handful. And there was a 5th century mummy found to have human DNA but different uh, anatomy. Human DNA but different anatomy. Uh, This was back in 2018, last year. Russian researchers analyzed tissue samples from one of these mysterious so-called alien creatures that they dug up in Peru in 2017. Now, this creature had this being, person, find, whatever you want to say, mummy, 
um, had an elongated skull and only three fingers. And it really excited ufologists because the mummy was found in a tomb near the Nazca lines, and they named it Maria. They said it's a humanoid being with 23 pairs of chromosomes, so far so human. It dates back to the year 400, a full millennium before the Europeans discovered America. So a radiologist in computer tomography found that particular uh, uh, sample, and he thinks that she could be a representative of a race that of a race that evolved thousands of years earlier than present-day humans, meaning hmm, that's human DNA but different characteristics. So, anyway, more elongated skulls being uncovered all the time. Here is a wonderful story that just lifted me up and really made me think. When it got so cold last week, uh, I thought about all the people across the country that were vulnerable to these kinds of temperatures. And a woman took it upon herself to rent hotel rooms and feed the homeless during Chicago's deep freeze. She did. You see, there were a group of 70 homeless people that were attempting to keep warm using nearly 100 propane heaters at a homeless encampment uh, consisting of tents in Chicago's South Loop neighborhood. And then one of the heaters exploded, and it took out most of the shelters. Well, no one was hurt in that explosion, fortunately, amazingly. But when this woman named Candace Payne heard that people would be out in the cold during this record-breaking temperature, she impulsively charged the first 20 to 30 hotel rooms to her American Express card. And then she made a post about it on social media. And she inspired dozens of financial and food donations for that particular encampment, the homeless that had lost a place to be warm. And she said, quote, It doesn't take much to be a blessing to someone else. It's freezing cold and deadly temperatures outside. For the people who has nowhere to go, no money, no food, family disowned them, need help. It's, it's not much, but to get them out, out of the cold, feed them and provide them with warm, clean clothes is a start. She posted this statement on Instagram. Her actions led to participation from other people, resulting in the rental of 70 rooms for the homeless during the worst cold period of last week. Isn't that something? Wow. I'd love to hear that. She charged her own credit card all of these hotel rooms for these people, posted it, inspired other people to do the same. They ended up with 70 rooms for all of these people um, and more. You know, I'm sure more more homeless were uh, housed other than just the encampment that we're talking about. I mean, goodness sakes, does that really make you feel good? about it human does. nature. It's wonderful. So, our quote for this week, when we love, we always strive to become better than we are. When we strive to become better than we are, everything around us becomes better too. So, from my heart to each one of you, love and light. Have a beautiful week, everybody. And thank you, Ariel. Oh, thank you so much, Anastasia. I'm going to be thinking about that that story. That's just very uplifting. It's wonderful. When people can do, wonderful. you know, if they just you know, pay it, it pay inspires it all, all the rest of us to be loving. Just think about 
the people out there, like myself, for instance, sits at and thought, gee, you know, I'm worried about those people. She did something about it. It's just right. so rich. Blessings yeah. to that dear woman. I mean, you know, wow. We know there's lots more people like her in the world, too. So it gives us hope. It does. And, you know, so when we uh, strive to become better than we are, everything around us becomes better, too. Something to think about. Thanks a lot. I'll see you guys next week. Okay. Thanks, Anastasia. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay. So, um, Erica, let me get your mic open and uh, Lavendar's mic open. Great. Okay. Erica, welcome to Starseed Radio Academy. We're so happy that you're here. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Oh, well, it's our pleasure, and we're looking forward to uh, hearing your story and hearing about your book, and uh, Lavendar is going to lead it off for us. So, uh, Lavendar, are you ready to go? I'm ready. I'm here. Okay. Take it away. Okay. So, Erica, I love your cookbook. In fact, I wanted to tell you, you were the first author at a cookbook on our show. I've been on the air for many years, and this is the first time that I have received a cookbook that I was so impressed with that I wanted to have you as our guest. So welcome. Aww. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. So tell us a little bit about yourself before we start talking about your book. Absolutely. So um, my journey, my whole cookbook journey kind of started with my own health issues. So about six years ago, I started to get very sick after a camping trip in Yosemite, and it ended up being Lyme disease. It took about two years of different health issues to figure that out. And once I finally figured it out, I started doing uh, different treatments. I did everything natural, um, and it took me about three years to recover. What ultimately healed me was getting stem cell therapy, but I did a lot of other things in that three-year window. And one of the biggest things that really helped me was really cleaning up my diet and changing my diet. And fortunately, I've been in remission from Lyme disease for about two years now. And uh, one of the things that I think really keeps my body healthy and strong and keeps that in remission is making sure that my diet continues to be very healthy and clean. And kind of with everything, everything I learned along the way, I was able to write a cookbook. And I'm also a certified health coach now as well. So I'm able to help people, um, whether they just want to get healthier, optimize their health, or are also dealing with chronic illnesses such as Lyme disease or autoimmune conditions. And I can kind of help guide them on their path to wellness as well. Lavendar, are you still there? I'm sorry, I had I, I had it muted. I'm sorry, I was just talking along there. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wasn't sure if I got cut off. I was like, am I still connected? <laughs> uh, I'm curious about your stem cell therapy. Did you have to leave the United States to do that? I did. I went to Germany to do it, and I used my own stem cells. So uh, the clinic I went to actually has a clinic here in the Los Angeles area as well, um, and they're able to do the same treatment here in the U.S. now. So it's definitely opened up uh, the possibility for more people to to have access to it. About that, I'm really interested in knowing how that works. Sure, I can talk about it a little bit. Sure. Um, 
so yeah, so it's a, actually a pretty simple procedure. So they harvested my own stem cells from my own fat. Um, it was a pretty simple procedure. It took about 20, 30 minutes to access it. And then from that, they're able to get your stem cells and different growth factors and things that can be really healing for your body. Um, and so they put it through a process that they do. It takes about two to three hours, and then they give them back to you via IV. And the way the stem cells work is it doesn't necessarily treat Lyme disease or go after and kill Lyme disease, but what it does is it really goes through and it repairs your immune system, it repairs any tissues that's been damaged, and it allows the cells in your body and the immune system to communicate better. And so by kind of healing your immune system and getting your body optimized, that's what really helps to try to get the Lyme disease in remission. So unfortunately, there's no cure for it, and there's nothing that actually even kills Lyme disease. So a lot of times, you know, if someone gets bitten and catches the bullseye uh, quickly, they're uh, usually prescribed doxycycline, and even that doesn't kill the Lyme disease. What it actually does is it slows the Lyme disease replication cycle so that your immune system has a fighting chance to be able to kill the bacteria on its own. So it, with Lyme disease, it's really, really about strengthening your immune system, really about you know detoxing your body and optimizing your body and getting your body working correctly. So that's where the stem cells really come in is they really help to give that immune system a boost, it gives your body a boost, and it helps kind of get everything working correctly again so that it has a fighting chance against Lyme disease and whatever co-infections you have as well. So how long did you um, do the stem cell therapy? How long did it take? I only did it once, um, and it's definitely a journey. So during the first 100 days, it's definitely a little bit up and down. That's the time where your stem cells are replicating and your body's kind of getting used to things. I did have certain symptoms that started to kind of melt away within the first few weeks. Um, So I definitely started noticing improvements in some issues, and then some things just take a lot longer. So um, our nerves unfortunately take a very long time to heal. So a lot of my neurological issues didn't really heal until the 9 to 10 months post-stem cell mark. Um, But by the time I got to about 5 to 6 months, I was feeling pretty good. I was able to start exercising again. I was able to start working again after years of not being able to work. My brain fog was better. I could think again. I could write again. I I could feel myself coming back to life. And so by the time I'd say I got to the 10 months, post-stem cells when I really felt like I, I was in remission, I didn't have Lyme symptoms anymore, and I really felt a lot better. So what was your occupation when you wrote this book? Uh, I was an architect, so I'm a licensed architect. That's my first occupation, and I actually own a design company uh, with my boyfriend, so that's kind of my day job, and I had to take a backseat from that while I was really sick. And so while I was healing is when I got my health coaching certification, and so I started writing for my blog and health coaching, and I wrote my cookbook last year once I was already feeling better. Do you also take all the pictures that are in here? I did. I did all the photography myself, all the photography, all the design, and obviously the recipes. <laughs> well, I think the the pictures are just wonderful. I I, I, I was so impressed by the the colors and the and the way that you you put this book together. Uh, it's very costly to print. These you know the colors in here are the just, pictures. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it definitely was a big project. I wanted One thing that really bothers me with cookbooks is when you're kind of flipping through them and they don't have pictures. You know, it's like you see the recipe and you see what goes into it, but you don't have an idea of what the finished product is going to look like or get excited about the recipe. So I really wanted for each recipe to have a picture so that, you know, you could see what you're getting into, see what you're going to make, see if you're interested in it. And also I just really enjoyed doing the photography side of it too. You know, as it is, I had a design and architecture and creative background and with the health-related work, it's 
I kind of lose a little bit of that creative edge, so that was, this is a good project to have that creative outlet. So I I was looking at the picture of the uh, a chicken pineapple fried rice where you've hollowed out a, a half of a pineapple yep. inside of the pineapple. Is this a recipe that you found over in Asia or in Hawaii or someplace? I did. I lived off of this in Thailand, so I'm actually extremely allergic to chilies, um, and I was allergic to them even before Lyme disease. Um, and so traveling through Asia, as you can imagine, was very difficult, not being able to eat any chilies or peppers. And uh, for some reason, that was the one dish that I could have everywhere I went in Thailand, and I pretty much lived off of pineapple fried rice the entire time I was there and that's how they would serve it they would serve it in the hollowed out pineapple and so you know the paleo diet you know rice is kind of one of those gray area foods some people do eat it after they've taken it out for a while and notice that it doesn't affect them negatively Um, but cauliflower rice is really kind of your go-to rice so this is a recreated version using cauliflower rice uh, for the recipe and so it still kind of has that rice aesthetic and rice feel and goes hand-in-hand hand with the dish, but it's a much healthier version instead of eating grains. Yes. I, for for those that aren't um, associ- know about the paleo diet, can you tell us more about how it's put together? Absolutely. So the paleo diet kind of is referred to as the caveman diet, if you will. So it's trying to look at what food our ancestors ate. And, you know, agriculture is something that's new, maybe in the past 10,000 years. So for a long time, our ancient man wasn't really eating grains and foods that were farmed in agriculture, so it was much more kind of a hunter-gatherer diet. And so the paleo diet kind of tries to go back to those roots, and it's really about trying to cut out all the inflammatory foods. So you're really sticking to really high-quality meats and fish, so grass-fed meats, wild fish, and then a lot of vegetables. You know, fruit is okay. Some people tend to minimize fruit because they want to lower their sugar content. Um, But you're really trying to cut out things like grains and soy and legumes, um, you know, things that are really inflammatory. Even dairy uh, is very inflammatory as well. So you're really trying to do things that are going to limit the inflammation on your body and help your gut stay really healthy and help your body thrive. Can you give us some examples of a healthy breakfast recipe? Absolutely. So my book actually has 12. Um, I personally am kind of a creature of habit, so on the weekdays I usually do a sunny-side-up egg uh, with a bulletproof coffee, but um, anytime you can incorporate eggs, um, they're a really great protein. You know, they're they're one of the best complete proteins that there is out there. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I have quite a few egg recipes. And then another thing that you can do is you can also do your own, <clears throat> excuse me, one second, your own meat patties. And so I have two in there. I have one that's a chicken apple patty. And so a lot of times when you buy store-bought sausages or, you know, meat patties in the store, they're full of sugar and all sorts of fillers that are really terrible for you. And you definitely don't want to be starting your day off with that. So, you know, you can do the patties that I have in the book, and those are a great replacement for sausages. Um, I have a pork patty as well that has some fresh herbs in it and spices. Um, So those are kind of my my go-tos for breakfast. I do have a few... uh, more, I want to say, time-consuming breakfasts that are more geared for weekends. Um, So I do have some paleo pancakes that are made with almond flour. And I actually have a sugar-free strawberry sauce on my website that you can make for it um, if you don't want to do syrup or any honey, any sugar. And then I also have a chia pudding in there that's kind of can borderline a dessert, um, but it doesn't have sugar either. It just has some berries. 
and I have some eggs benedict, which usually is off the table because you obviously can't have any English muffins, but I actually do an English muffin replacement with a potato latke, and then using some prosciutto, and then a poached egg, and then a hollandaise sauce that I have a recipe for in the book as well. Wow. So you've really devoted a lot of time to putting this um, cookbook together, and the pictures are just awesome. I'm really anxious to try some of these recipes. I haven't been able to do it yet, but I will. Uh, I noticed that, that you have been contacted by Netflix. So tell us about the film that you were associated with. I have, yes. So I was on a show called Afflicted, and the show really tries to follow uh, multiple people with chronic illness, and it really tries to open um, you know, the lens on what those people struggle with and how they go from doctor to doctor and can't get answers to their own health. Uh, unfortunately, the show is a little controversial. Um, at the time that I filmed it, I didn't know that this was going to be kind of the angle, but they really kind of spun it in a way to make it seem like these people, maybe it was in their head or they were making this up when, in fact, these patients are really dealing with real-life chronic illnesses that are affecting a lot of people. Um, so the show is a little controversial in that. Um, but nevertheless, you know, I think any sort of publicity or, uh, you know, eye-opening lens that you can give to these sorts of conditions is good. So uh, I was contacted by one of the people that was followed on the show, and I conducted a health coaching session for the girl. Um, so I felt like it was a really good opportunity to be able to help her. She was really lost. She was having issues finding the right doctor. So, um, you know, I made some suggestions to see some of the doctors that helped me and, you know, shared some of the treatment options that helped me as well to see if that could give her a little bit of insight and a little direction in her healing journey. So how is your coaching going along? Are people finding you to uh, talk talk about their um, maybe their immune systems or, or the different ways that they can get healed with food? Absolutely. Are you really setting yourself up to uh, talk to many people a day, or do you just do it occasionally, or how are you setting that up for yourself? I do. I have a pretty full client list. I try to limit how many I take at a time because I have so many other kind of side projects going on, so I usually take about 10 to 15 uh, clients at a time, um, and we meet every two weeks, so I'm able to kind of stagger the weeks that we meet um, and, you know, devote a day to it each week. And so I have patients that are I, deal, I work with on all sorts of different levels, um, some of them are just kind of working to optimize their health and try to eat healthier and want to know how to shop better and meal plan and things like that. And so that's kind of one sector of it. And then I have a lot of other ones that I work with as well that are dealing with chronic conditions, um, particularly Lyme. I do have a program devoted specifically to people that are dealing with Lyme disease and wanting to do stem cells or just got their stem cells. So really kind of helping them through that journey. As I mentioned, it can be really up and down and take a while before you start to see improvements. Um, so it can be really helpful to have someone that's kind of gone through it, you know, holding your hand and kind of guiding you through that. So those are kind of the two extremes of, of the kinds of clients that I work with. Can you educate our art audience uh, about gluten-free foods sure. and, how, and how that has helped you to, to be gluten-free? Mm. Absolutely. Well, I'm celiac, so I don't really have a choice in the matter, <laughs> which is kind of a good thing because it means I can never cheat, um, kind of a bad thing because it also can be kind of isolating. It can be hard for me to go out to eat, hard to travel sometimes. So it's definitely getting a lot easier in the world, especially just in the past six years that I've been gluten-free, especially this past year. I've noticed it's a lot easier. Um, but gluten is one of those foods that, you know, 
people don't really think that they have an issue with, and it's hard to know if you do unless you take it out of your diet for about three to four weeks to kind of see if your body is reacting to it or not. And so I've definitely coached a lot of people, you know, learning how to take it out of their diet and and how to notice if it is affecting them or not. Um, One thing that's interesting is when I was first diagnosed with celiac disease, um, my doctor said to try going on the gluten-free diet, which I did. And, you know, I was buying all the gluten-free replacement foods, the pastas and the muffins and everything, just kind of eating a sad American diet like I used to before. And I noticed when I was eating these gluten-free foods that I was always feeling a little spacey, a little tired, and, you know, I was like, I thought I was supposed to feel better on this diet, and I really didn't feel any different. And so I talked to my doctor about it, and that's when he actually suggested doing a paleo diet and trying to cut out all those gluten-free foods. So it's really easy to try to use those replacements, but I find that they're not very healthy and they don't really work well. And it wasn't until I really went paleo and replaced those foods with eating whole foods and eating you know, those high-quality meats and the vegetables and really shopping on the perimeter of the grocery store that I really felt a substantial difference in my health and how I felt and my energy and my brain function. And then everything started to improve. So do you, do you, uh, do you eat red meat? I do. I'm a carnivore now. And I actually uh, used to be a a vegetarian for 10 years, if you can believe it, but now I'm a full-on (laughs) T-Rex. Okay. (laughs) You know, I I tried to be a vegetarian for three years, and it almost killed me. And and, and the way I got better was, was, um, you know, my first meal was oxtail soup. And Mm -hmm. from there I went went to something else, uh, like a steak the next day, and all of a sudden Mm -hmm. I was getting better. I thought, you know what, I just can't be a vegetarian. I wish I could, but I just can't. Yeah, you know, I feel like it actually really contributed to a lot of my health issues, too. I don't think I was a very good vegetarian, but I think I was compensating for a lot of the meat. I was eating extra gluten and things like that, which, you know, being celiac or having the susceptibility to being celiac definitely was weakening my immune system and weakening my body. And so for me, it definitely wasn't a healthy choice either. And as soon as I started eating meat again, I didn't even have a transition where I felt sick or had to ease it in. I felt really good going right back into it. So um, I feel way better these days, you know, eating protein and and eating meat. Unfortunately, I would like to be vegetarian as well for the planet and the animals, but I really try to stick to humanely raised meats, you know, and farms that really are practicing, you know, the the sustainability factor of things. And and I definitely don't eat factory farmed meat or, you know, things in that nature. so. So, So where do you live now? What state do you live in? I'm in California. I live in Los Angeles. Okay, so do you, I guess it, you can get a lot of organic beef where you're living? Absolutely. There's a, a butcher shop that I go to every week to kind of stock up on my meat. It's called Del Campo, um, and their farms are in Northern California, but they have great quality meat. They're really high-end farm, um, you know, really do things the right way, and the meat is all grass-fed, grass-finished, uh, very high quality. How about the fish? I know that there's been a lot of radiation happening uh on the west coast um uh, so how do you how do you um address the radiation in fish yeah you know it's kind of a it's a little scary <laughs> i'm not going to lie so um i really try to stick to wild fish which you know again with the radiation you don't really know um but i mean you can stick to more river fish instead of you know ocean fish and things like that the smaller the fish the less mercury the less issues and toxins it's going to have so 
Um, again, it's really kind of finding the right source for those. Um, but I, I've actually really been limiting my fish intake with all of those issues. I, I do eat it a couple times a week, but I try to get most of my protein from um, from either beef or lamb um, and sometimes chicken as well, just because I am a little scared of the, the radiation. So when you're traveling, um, what are the things that you find on menus that, that work for you? It's easy to always go for, you know, a protein and a vegetable or protein and a salad. Um, that's definitely always a safe bet. Um, you know, I definitely do a lot of research before I travel, too. I definitely look at what restaurants might be available. Uh, as far as gluten goes, there's a great app that I use called Find Me Gluten Free, and I'll usually start there because people will rate restaurants based on how safe it was gluten-wise. So I kind of have like a tier that I work down when I travel or eat, when I eat out in general. Um, the most important one is am I going to get gluten there or can I eat there safely? So sometimes I have to compromise, you know, eating organic or eating grass-fed meat because I don't want to get glutened, and that's kind of like the top the top delineation for me. Um, after that, you know, I try to find places that are organic, um, use high-quality ingredients, use grass-fed meat, things like that. So the next kind of tier is kind of the quality of ingredients. So I definitely I think the most important piece is researching before you travel somewhere um, and trying to find places that you know you're going to be able to eat at. I oftentimes email restaurants, too, um, you know, to ask them if they're able to accommodate the food allergies and the gluten issue and if their meat is grass-fed and things like that. So research, research, research. <laughs> you also ask them about the oil that they cook mm -hmm. things in. I know that, that canola is called the rapeseed. Mm -hmm. um, can you give us a little insight to the, the oils that you use? Absolutely. So I only use coconut oil, avocado oil, or grass-fed butter and ghee um, as my cooking fats. So... The seed oils are really terrible for you. They're extremely inflammatory. They cause a lot of issues in your gut and just inflammation in general systemically in your body. So it's really important to avoid those, especially when they're heated. Um, so uh, avocado oil and coconut oil are great because they have a really high smoke point, um, which means that you can cook with them at high temperatures without the fats you know, becoming rancid or becoming inflammatory. So those are two really great ones. Olive oil I don't cook with, but I do use for, you know, seasoning or salad dressings and things like that because it's not a great oil to cook with. How about grapeseed oil? Have you tried it? I have tried it. You know, that was kind of a gray area one. I personally don't use it too much um, because I think that's one that you don't necessarily want to cook with either. It's one that you use more for, you know, seasonings or dressings and things like that. And for that, my go-to usually is just a high-quality olive oil. So what is your philosophy regarding cooking? Regarding cooking, I would say it needs to be simple and it needs to be healthy, um, you know, and something that's interesting to eat but not overly complicated to make. So I find that the more simple things are when you're using a high-quality ingredient, that the flavor of the food really comes through and you don't need to mask it with a lot of, like, spices and sauces and seasonings and things like that. You know, you can really taste the flavor of the food. Um, so you know, keeping things really simple. My go-to seasonings for everything are a little bit of salt, some fresh herbs, and and lemon, if, you know, the lemon works on the dish or not. So I like to keep things really simple and really fresh. So um, I wanted to know, do you do any kind of uh, probiotics uh, you know, to keep yourself healthy? I go back and forth with those. I used to do them a lot, and I didn't really notice any improvements, and then I stopped. 
and then when I'm not on them, I wonder if I should. In a way, it kind of weirds me out to be taking a pill of bugs that I'm putting in my body and not knowing if those bugs need to be in there. Um, I think there's other things that you can do with your gut, you know, depending on the foods that you eat and depending on, you know, how you're taking care of your gut that can kind of create the right balance of microbes in your gut, you know, by by eating the right foods. How about fermented uh, cabbage or sauerkraut? Sometimes I do those, but I tend to find that they can be high in yeast, and I actually have a, a pretty intense sensitivity to yeast, and I get a really red breakout around my chin, or around my nose, I mean, and I notice it any time I eat something with yeast or if I eat too many fermented foods. So I don't say, I don't, I don't dive into those too often. My kind of go-to for my gut, um, I really like collagen and bone broths and things like that that can really help to seal the gut. And I do like to do, you know, prebiotics um, that essentially are foods that go stay undigested and get into your intestinal tract so that the bacteria can eat it. And that way that can really help to thrive the, the bugs that should be in there. So do you, you use a lot of rice in your recipes, don't you? Uh, sometimes if I, if it's a rice dish, I, you can either use rice or you can do cauliflower rice. Yeah, cauliflower rice. Okay. So I, I really appreciate you taking the time to be with us on our, our show tonight. And I encourage people to, uh, look up your website. Tell us how that people can order your book. Absolutely. So the book is on my website. It's the www.thetrailtohealth.com. And it's also available on Amazon. You just need to search for Wandering Palette. Well, you've done an excellent job with this book, and and I, I, I keep it on my bed, and at night, <laughs> thrum to it and, and look at those beautiful, beautiful pictures. Aww. You did an excellent job of, of, of taking these photographs. I mean, the food looks like it's just going to step right off the page into your plate. <laughs> <laughs> but at this time, I'd like to uh, uh, share with you my co-host, Arielle, and she mm-hmm. has the switchboard in case people want to call in or talk to you or have comments. So will you be willing to do that for a few moments? Absolutely. Okay, so back to you, Ariel. Okay. Wow. Um, I am just so happy that you've written this book because, um, I mean, I know a lot of people that need to read it. So um, I wanted to to ask about... Um, you had mentioned that you know you stay away from dairy. Um, is is like cottage cheese? Is that okay? Um, I had someone tell me once that that you know that cottage cheese is not the same as dairy because it's uh, it's I don't know how it's how they make it, but um, <laughs> yeah, is cottage cheese still um, inflammatory? It is, just because it is dairy. Just dairy in general can be very mucus-producing, very inflammatory. Um, I do dabble in some cheese and dairy every now and then. I actually don't really feel that I have an issue with it. Um, and I've taken it out of my diet multiple times and, and taken it back in. Um, so I do have some cheese. The dairy that I do use on a daily basis is grass-fed butter. Um, but the thing with butter is the part of dairy that's inflammatory is the casein, which is a protein in dairy. And uh, that's, you know, found in very high doses in milk, unfortunately cottage cheese, ice cream, things like that, anything that's very milky. Um, But butter is mostly butter fat, and so it has a very small amount of casein left. So it's one of the least inflammatory forms of dairy. And then you can go to ghee, which actually tries to strain out all that casein, so it has even less inflammation. So 
A lot of times people that are sensitive to dairy can actually tolerate ghee because it doesn't have a lot of the casein, whereas the other forms of dairy do. So that's where you can kind of run into, you know, the inflammation issues with dairy. And um, you had said that you don't eat a lot of chicken um, and because isn't chicken also inflammatory? It pr- produces heat in the body? It's not necessarily the heat, but it's that it's higher in omega-6s. Um, you know, and a lot of times we're trying to find that right ratio. Omega-3s is obviously the ones that you want to have more of, and you get that from red meats, you get that from salmon, um, different things like that. Omega-6s, unfortunately in our everyday lives we get a lot of those, especially from, you know, the bad seed oils that we talked about, like the canola oil and things like that. And so you're really trying to limit your omega-6s um, and, you know, get the, the ratio right. So I eat it a couple times a week. Honestly, it's not my favorite meat out of all the meats out there. Um, I really, really feel great when I eat beef, when I eat a good grass-fed meat. Um, I feel more energy. I feel more vibrant. My brain works better, and I just I just feel best when I eat that. So I tend to eat that more often than not. Well, um do you do you know your blood type? I'm an O, which means I like meat. <laughs> apparently. Well, yeah, that's that's that because there was a book that came out quite some time ago. Eat for your type or your blood type. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And I I do remember that because I'm type O as well. <clears throat> and uh, type O people they're like the original blood type, mm-hmm. and goes back so far that you have to have red meat. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't have to live on it, you know, exclusively, but... Right, um, but you definitely yeah, you thrive go, on it. Yeah, if you go too long without it, um, you just start to feel a little bit weak. So, um, but then, if I recall, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's like the A and the AB blood types that are more, you know, uh, fish and vegetables and, and mm-hmm. lighter more kind of... Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, I stopped... Uh, well, actually, Lebanon and I both... Um, stopped gluten after we had mm-hmm. a guest. Gosh, it's been about two years, I think. Lavender has been longer than that, at least two years. And um, and I was like, okay, yeah, I can do this. And uh, but I was really missing, you know, having uh, having you know bread or toast <clears throat> in the morning. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I had, I've talked to a lot of people. It's like, well, you know, you can find gluten free um, wheat. Uh, and you can find organic wheat, but you can't find organic gluten-free wheat. And I thought, well, that's, that's, I mean, have you found that as well? Um, well, I don't. I haven't heard of gluten-free wheat. I've seen a couple breads out there that say that they are gluten-free and they're based with wheat. Um, I personally wouldn't trust that it's totally gluten-free. Um, for the most part, you know, a lot of the gluten-free breads or replacements are typically made with rice or millet or quinoa and things like that. Um but there's a couple, There's I don't know if it's organic, but there's one bread, a gluten-free bread that I really, really like. It's called Bread Seriously, but the seriously is spelled without any vowels. Um, and it's a sourdough, uh, it's a sourdough gluten-free bread, and it's based, it's a rice base. Um, if you can ever find that one or order that one online, that one's pretty good. That one I do, I do eat grains for on occasion as a special occasion. Well, yeah, I mean, so in my in my search, um I actually came across a a gluten-free organic bread mix mm-hmm. and it's based on buckwheat. Oh, nice. And um and it's it's uh, 
uh, buckwheat and and uh, uh, different ingredients, but it's all it's all organic and it's all gluten free, and uh, I've really been enjoying that. Um, oh, that's good. Yeah, yeah, because it just you know there's just sometimes when you when I'm having eggs it just yeah I'm you conditioned you gotta toast. have toast <laughs> you gotta have toast with your eggs. So, I know. Um, Every now and then I, I splurge and have it, but I definitely don't try to make a habit of it. But, yeah, I I agree. Yeah. Every now and then you have to enjoy yourself a little bit. Yeah, but um, just for for anybody that might be interested, interested if you go, um, just do an Internet search um, for Arnell Bread. It's A-R-N-E-L. And uh, they've got a, everything is gluten-free and organic. And they're in California. Great. Okay, yeah. I'm gonna have to check that out. Yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, <laughs> uh, I just want to uh, take a moment here and say if if anyone who is listening, uh, if you're already on the switchboard and you have a question or you need some guide guidance, um, just press one on your keypad so we know that you want to talk to Erica. And if you're listening on the computer, then just pick up the phone and dial nine one seven eight eight nine. 8292, and then once you're in, press 1, and um, our producers will get you set to come on and ask your question of Erica. So take advantage of this opportunity, people. So um, let me ask you, do you have uh, do you have children? I have two French Bulldogs, <laughs> two fur babies. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I hear, I've got two Labradors. Yeah, they're the uh, kids with tails, right? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, do you uh, do they get special food too? They do. So, in the book, I actually have two dog food recipes as well. Um, so they're pretty much paleo that. as well. <laughs> they, uh, you know, one of them has a lot of food allergies. So, similar to my story, I used to have over sixty food allergies when I was dealing with Lyme and. Fortunately, down to five of them now, but um, I really was able to use my knowledge and kind of help figure out what allergies he was dealing with. And so he does really well with beef and turkey, so he's pretty much on protein diet, and he does um, some vegetables with it, but we don't do any grains or any pea protein or any fillers. Um, We actually, uh, there's a lady that's local here that actually makes dog food for dogs, and it's really clean ingredients, pretty much, you know, paleo dog food essentially. And so she makes him a custom blend of turkey and kale that he eats. And then, um, you know, sometimes we cook for him too. He's he's spoiled. <laughs> and then my <laughs> other one, she unfortunately doesn't have a lot of food allergies. Um, so she eats a paleo food as well. Uh, but, yeah, they don't do any grains or any gluten either. Yeah, well, you know, I've... When you feed them like you would feed yourself, um, because they have, you know, the same the same body systems as, mm-hmm. as a human. Absolutely. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, so, do you do um, you do sessions with people? Um, you said you 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 don't do too many because you make it very personal. Mm-hmm. Um, but tell me how those. Uh, you said you work with ten or fifteen people at a time. Um, is there a like a you you get together in a in a conference and and 
and help them? So that's indi- that's individually usually. So I do do some workshops on occasion. Um, I just did a workshop for actually going gluten free. So it was a three week workshop that I did, and I had about nine people in that workshop. I think um, so. That one was a lot more intimate. Sometimes it can be up to twenty people um, is usually the max that I do for a workshop. Um, but in general, the ten to fifteen are the clients that I work with one-on-one. So typically what we do is uh, we have a, kind of a six-month schedule that we that we have, and we meet twice a month for six months. Um, and so what that does is that really helps us kind of define our goals in the beginning, and then, you know, every two weeks we have check-ins to see how those goals are coming along. We set milestones and check-ins, and then, you know, essentially by the time you're at the six-month mark, hopefully you've been able to implement a lot of the things that were your goals and that you wanted to, to reach. And so uh, typically it's a session, a 15-minute session that we have every two weeks, um, and, you know, just kind of track against what your personal goals are. And do these people all have um, either Lyme or, or celiac, or is, is there a myriad of I mean, a big portion definitely is Lyme. I definitely work with a lot of, um, you know, patients with Lyme that have gone through stem cell therapy, so that's definitely one kind of big piece of it. Um, Right now I have another one that just wants to eat healthier. She wants to lose weight. She wants to get her hormones balanced, and she goes to the grocery store, and she's not quite sure, you know, what to buy, and so we actually did a session going into the grocery store, you know, and walking around together, and she kind of showed me what she typically goes to, and I showed her how to make healthier food choices, you know, when she's shopping, so things like that. So it can definitely be a big range of, of what people need help with. And do you um, uh, do you find that, that sometimes the people have extraneous things going on in their life that's having an impact on their health? Um, does Does that enter into it? Absolutely. You know, like a lot of times it can be learning to manage stress, learning to say no, you know, making sure that you're incorporating self-care and time for yourself and, you know, not just burning the candle at both ends. So it's definitely something, you know, we look at and work with as well. So it's not always just about food. There's other things that are definitely impacting your health as well. Okay. So you do take a, a holistic approach to, you know, to any any um, condition or, or, you know, complaint Mhm, absolutely. So, um is there anything else that you would like to talk about? I think we covered a lot. We did. We did. <laughs> I just think we covered we just covered a whole lot of ground. But um I just want to say one more time your website is the trail to health.com and uh people can reach you uh through your website. Uh, you have contact information there, I suppose, and everything. I do, um, absolutely. Okay. And I'm also on Instagram. Okay. I'm the Trail to Health, and so I post lots of health tips and recipes and anything else that's going on for the week um, on my Instagram as well. So it's a great place, place to keep up with me. Okay. Well, this is great. And I, I want to thank you so much for um, spending your, your time with our audience and helping them to understand what you've had to go through and how you have had the success and you know I like it what you uh, what you wrote in your in your bio never give up you can get Absolutely. your life back stick with it for sure yeah well that's that's a very positive message and and we have to be you know we have to be able to imagine what we want in order to get it 
if you can't imagine being healthy, then it'd be much harder to get it. Absolutely. So, um, you know, you know, working with your with your vision, with your focus, with your, um, you know, the more you know, spiritual kind of side, and taking those steps forward into into greater health. Because you know, regardless, you know, we we have a, a very spiritual audience uh, of star seeds, but um, regardless of what your mission is or what your passion is, if you don't feel good, it's like all bets are off. Absolutely. You know, if you if you just Health if you just don't feel like you can get out of bed, um, it doesn't matter Nothing if you're a matters. great artist or, yeah. Nope. <clears throat> yeah. So. Um, you you know we all through every walk of life have to maximize our life force and our vitality in order to go forward with uh, you know success as as human and spiritual beings absolutely so well erica thank you so much for writing this book and for being with us this evening and i do hope that um you get some inquiries from our listening audience, um, because this will be listened to over and over again in our archives. So uh, it can continue. So thank you so much, and um, we're going to wrap it up now. So we thank everyone for listening, and um, we will be back next week. And take care every day. Find something to be grateful for and show compassion. Good night, everyone. You've been listening to Starseed Radio Academy. Visit our website at www.starseedhotline.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.